Your problem isn't that you don't have enough good ideas, it's that you don't have enough bad ideas. And if you could figure out how to have more bad ideas, the good ideas will take care of themselves. You're listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. Hello, folks. This is Nikki Ballou here for another episode of the podcast, The Business of Thought Leadership. I'm here with my phenomenal co-host, Michael Palmer. Say hello to the folks, Michael. Hello, everyone. And boy, do we have a real treat for you today. We have with us none other than the one, the only Seth Godin. Seth really is such a huge star in the world of thought leadership that he doesn't need an introduction, but he is a multiple New York Times bestselling author. He's one of the world's most renowned speakers in the area of business and marketing and standing out in the marketplace. It's just a real treat to have him here on the podcast. Please say hello to the folks, Seth. Hello to the folks. <laughs> and it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a real honor to have you here on this call. You know, Seth, one of the things that I really admire about you is that in, in an ambiguous age, you are decidedly unambiguous. People know where you stand on things. How'd you get to be that way? Well, I think that, the, you know, how do you end up with a three-inch long beard or being a gold medal in the pole vault is a tricky long-term thing. I think the idea of being clear about what you believe and what you care about is a decision you get to make every morning when you're eating your Fruit Loops. And if you wanted to, you could start right now. Yeah, well said, well said, well said. Um, Seth, you have managed the unique trick of being someone who has written books that have really captured the imagination of people at a lot of levels. You've written books for people who are beginners in the world of business. You have a great podcast called Startup School, which is for people getting started in business. Yet in a lot of the work you've done, you've also brought some very sophisticated concepts out to the marketplace and for people to listen to. How is it that you're able to be so uh, diverse and eloquent in speaking on, on subjects at so many different levels of complexity? Uh, well, I'll confess, I'm a little nervous at where um, the conversation is going because I don't view much of anything I do as being uh, a unique gift or even uh, much of a practiced skill as much as it is a choice. And I think that everyone who's listening to this has the opportunity to walk through certain doorways. And many of those doorways are open for the first time ever. And I don't know how long they'll be open for, but I hope they stay open for a while. And that is the heart of what I'm trying to teach people, is that we would like to believe that creativity or, dare I say it, genius belongs to other people, but I don't think it does. I think each of us has created art that matters. Each of us has connected and spoken up and done something important. The only difference is, can you do it a little longer than you did yesterday? It's well said. And, and uh, what, what I love about when I listen to you, Seth, is you, you uh, recent podcast I was listening to, you were a guest, and you talked about that 
you know, how, I think it was someone was trying to humanize you and you said, listen, it's not about, like, if you knew what I did, it's not going to help you do, go and do it. But what it might do is inspire you to actually go and do whatever it is that you're going to do. And so what has it been for you that inspires, like, what is it that inspires you to go and do the things you're doing? I think it's possible to do science based on frustration that you are frustrated that something doesn't work and you devote time and energy to making it work. I am so lucky that I won the parent lottery. I was born in the right year in the right city uh, with the right posture to go forward. And I find that my best work comes not from frustration, but from gratitude. Because what gratitude enables us to do is realize that we're in a get to, not a have to situation that we get to make a connection, that we get to make a difference, that we get to do our work. We don't have to do it. And I'm grateful every day for the platform I have, for the chance I have for these tools that are that were inconceivable. You know, I've been reading science fiction since I was seven. That's 1967. And all of my friends and heroes, the Isaac Asimovs and the Harry Harrisons of the world, forgot to invent the internet. <laughs> they forgot to invent search engines. They forgot to invent this platform for publishing. It, you know, it wasn't until Neil Stevenson and William Gibson came along 30 years later that they hinted at the world of Snow Crash and the metaverse and uh, you know, the publishing platform that we hear in Ender's Game. But it was inconceivable for thousands of years of human existence. And here we are. We got it. It's our revolution. So what are we waiting for? No, that's well said. Seth, you know, one of the things that we did in preparation for this interview is we actually reached out to our community and our audience on Facebook, and we told them we were going to be interviewing you. And we asked some of our audience members if they had some questions that they would want us to ask of you. And uh, what we told them was that we would pick the best ones and we would acknowledge them on the air. So if you don't mind, I'd like to ask a couple of those questions from our audience members for you. Go for it. Um, there's a gentleman named Victor Minash. And Victor's question is, Seth, many marketers talk about reaching their target market. In reality, markets don't buy anything or recommend me or customers. Customers do, people do. Waiting for people to notice me seems slow and haphazard. What have you discovered about how to connect with influencers to accelerate their propagation of your message? That's a mouthful. Yeah, well, Duncan Watts has written about this. Malcolm Gladwell has written about this. We would like to believe that being anointed by an influencer is a shortcut. And every once in a while, that is true. That when the Freakonomics guys got on the cover of the New York Times Magazine, it made a difference. When Buzz Agent got on the cover, it made a difference. That showing up on Oprah can make a difference. The problem is the odds are against you. That more and more influencers are overwhelmed by pitches and the number of people who are looking to get through that door is too high. When I look at Facebook, Airbnb, Amazon, eBay, none of these multi-billion dollar institutions grew because influencers recommended them. That the iPod, the iPhone were wildly dismissed by influencers when they first came out. That if you track how ideas actually make an impact on the culture, the influencer with a capital I is rarely as important as you think. 
that if I blogged something that you were working on, maybe you'd get a couple thousand visits. Maybe you'd sell 20 of whatever it is you've got. That if I blog a book, yeah, it'll pop on Amazon. But that's not enough. 300 copies, that's not enough. So then what happens? Then what happens is among those 300 people are 30 people who tell 10 more. Well, that's 300 right there. And then it happens again, it happens again, it happens again. So it's not about influencer with a capital I. It's about do people who care talk about it with the sense of people like us do things like this. Because that one single sentence defines culture. If you want to change culture, you got to change what it means when we say people like us do things like this. That's awesome. So here's another question. It's from actually a, a local thought leader here in Toronto by the name of Jeremy Miller. He's uh, been a bestseller in on the Globe and Mail, which isn't the same as the New York Times, but it's still pretty good. Pretty great paper, the Globe and Mail. It's a great paper. I agree with you. Jeremy's I a pretty miss smart it. guy. I miss Joanne Cates, but other than that, it's a pretty great paper. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jeremy Miller, his question is, was there a person that was instrumental in setting you up for the success you have today? And if so, who were they and how'd they help you? Oh, it's not one person. There's so many. I mean, you got to start with my mom and my dad. And they were crazy enough to send me up to summer camp in Algonquin Park and then the people I met there. And David and Bill at Spinnaker Software and standing on Jay Levinson's deck throwing tennis balls for his dog and Tom Peters and, you know, people on the outside world, the Cheryl Sandbergs and Krista Tippetts and Jacqueline Novogratzes of the world and, 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 and mostly my readers, because if the first hundred readers hadn't responded the way they did, then I never would have reached the next hundred readers and on and on and on. There's just such a long line of people I need to point to. You know, Adrian Zakheim, who's one of the great business book publishers of our time, he published Jim Collins, he published Scott Adams. He didn't want to publish me and he would argue with me about my stuff. And his arguing with me made a huge difference to the quality of my work. And then he did publish my stuff. And that made a huge difference to the quality of my work. And now he doesn't publish my stuff. And that also makes a big difference in the quality of my work. So it's impossible to say one person, one moment. The cool part of this is that all of us have that same cadre of people. They're different people, but they're there if you look for them. That's a good point. You know, I never thought of it that way. But you know, when I look back on my own life, there's absolutely been a cadre of people. And, and, and I can think of people who, for me, just like the publisher who wouldn't publish you for a while, pushed me to, to be better by turning me down. That, that's a very powerful point. Seth, you spoke about reading science fiction when you were seven years old. I, I'm a big believer that thought leaders should read fiction. I believe fiction sharpens your thinking. It sharpens your creativity. I want to know what your thoughts are on that. And, 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 and if you disagree with me, great. But if you agree with me, what are some books you're reading currently and, and why are you finding them interesting? Uh, Sean Coyne, C-O-Y-N-E, great blogger well. and publisher, has written really intelligently about genre. Genre sounds like generic, but it's not. And genre gives us an understanding of what's to come so that something that fits into a genre, we don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about the setting. We can go right to the heart of what the author was trying to tell us. So 
classic hard science fiction is a genre. Certain kinds of golden age comic books are a genre. Romance fiction is a genre. It is useful, truly useful to explore a genre, and it doesn't really matter which one. But to understand tropes and conventions and structures, to see the similarities and to see the differences helps you be better at seeing that in the real world. So I'm a huge fan of people getting into any genre whatsoever. Now, there are critics who say genre fiction isn't what fiction could be. That what they seek is non-genre fiction, literary fiction, where the rules change every time. And I think that does advance the art form. But if you seek to be a marketer, a decision maker, somebody who's trying to grapple with the future, my vote is for genre. And if I had a vote for genre, I would pick the genre of hard science fiction because I find that its structures, particularly in the 50s and 60s, were really useful to understanding, all right, this is the board. Now where are the pieces and what's going on here? And so if you read uh, Heinlein or you read Dune or you read Asimov, you get this sense of, well, we have built a world. Now what's going to happen? And the reason that that's useful is you get to do the same thing in the real world. That's fantastic. I love Heinlein. Uh, a Stranger uh, in a Strange Land is one of my favorite books. And The Moon is a Harsh Mistress is, is another one that I really, really enjoyed. So, you know what? It's probably time to dust off some of those books and, and maybe start reading some Asimov. I never really read much of his stuff. Thank you for sharing that with us. Michael has a question for you. Well, listen, Seth, you know, and I think it, 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 it's connected to what you were just saying is that, the, the, you know, you'll see the world a different way when you start to do some of this work by reading and understanding the pieces on the board and the board itself. I'm sure there's listeners sitting there thinking, you know, how can I be more expansive like Seth Godin? And I know you write and you put it out all the time. And I've read your book, The Dip. And, you know, that was an inspiration for me around just continuing to do it and do the work. You know, that's a big thing I took away was just do the work. But what I like to revisit a little bit of that around just people getting out there and just revealing what it is they're thinking about, whether it's good or bad or whatever, but just doing it. Okay, well, I'll give you two tactics. And I'm not a huge fan of tactics, but here we go. Tactic number one, you should blog every single day. And it's okay if you don't use your real name, but you should blog every single day. Every day, you should write something that's got your understanding of the world or your prediction about what's going to happen next for a few reasons. One reason is that you will be able to look back at that six months from now and see yourself getting more sophisticated. Another reason is that knowing you have to blog tomorrow will help you think differently today. And that accountability is priceless. And then the second thing, which I cannot state strongly enough, is you need to go sell. You need to find the kind of person you are trying to influence and go sell them. Go face-to-face -face and get them to buy your book. Face-to-face -face and get them to sign up for your service. Face-to-face, -face, an actual transaction. Because what, you ha what happens when you try to make an actual transaction is objections are surfaced. And behind those objections lies fear. Fear about change, fear about abandoning the status quo. So putting those two pieces together is huge because now you will truly understand. So I spent a lot of time 
uh, working with nonprofits, particularly companies that Acumen has invested in. And I was with uh, a bunch of leaders yesterday about this. So if you want to fix a huge problem, getting a cook stove into the hands of somebody in Kenya is really special because you're going to save them hours. You're going to give them better health. A whole bunch of things are going to be improved because they have a cook stove. You understand that. What you don't understand is that the person who you're hoping will buy the cook stove has a different narrative than you. They see the world differently than you. They're not stupid. They're not uninformed, but they have different priorities and a different way of thinking. And you need to empathize with that and understand that if you want to make a product for them. And that's what we do when we make change, right? We create value by giving people something that makes them better, feel better. But if you haven't made any sales, I'm not optimistic you're going to be able to pull it off. You speak in my language, Seth. I'm a big believer in that. One of the things that uh, Michael and I tell our clients is you got to be pitching, you got to be selling. And then at the end of the day, as a thought leader, you got to go build whatever it is that you sold. And uh, if people aren't selling on a daily basis, if they're not writing on a daily basis, they're not going to move forward. As a, th- as a thought leader, you got to be thinking and you got to put your thoughts down on paper or digitally. And you've got to go out there and see if the marketplace is going to validate them. So I'm 100% on board with what you said. I think it's pure gold. And notice that none of it costs any money. So I just took away your biggest excuse. There you go. I, I want to come back to the, that concept of the narrative. And so, you know, understanding your customer and understanding that narrative, what are some of the ways you're looking at it? And, and I guess we only can see what we are own, through our own narrative. How do you break down your own narrative and block out that so that you can start to see more clearly other people's narrative? Like, it's almost like I'm trying to sell them on uh, what I think they should need to buy versus what is it that they truly, what is truly going on? Yeah, most people who are coming up have trouble, and a lot of people, even more people who have come up have trouble with two sentences. One, I was wrong. And that's something I try to say all the time. So, you know, in 1993, the World Wide Web showed up, and I said to the people on my tiny team, this is stupid. It's like Prodigy, but slower with no business model. The World Wide Web will never amount to anything. And you know, that cost me a billion dollars. Oh, my God. Um, but I was super proud that nine months later I was able to say, I was wrong. That's hard to do. And the second thing that's really hard to say is I'm being selfish. Meaning you sell life insurance. You go to someone and say, I think you need to buy life insurance. Well, actually what you're saying is I will benefit if you buy life insurance. I am being selfish because I get paid on commission. And if I wasn't in the life insurance business, the chances that I would be saying to my friends and relatives and people I care about, go buy life insurance is close to zero, right? That almost no one who doesn't sell life insurance for a living is busy proselytizing to their friends and family more than once to go buy life insurance. Now, I'm not hating on life insurance. There are certain places and times where it's a brilliant invention. What I'm saying is... It's really easy to not hear our own narrative, right? To say to someone, you should book me to be on your show. Well, because you're the best guest in the history of the world, 
or because it would be good for you. So the narrative we usually carry around is, I have things I need to accomplish that would be good for me. And that's okay. That makes the world work. But at least we should acknowledge that we have that narrative. So, so Seth, if I'm getting you right, because I really like what I'm hearing, is you're saying that if in our commercial conversations with people, we're able to acknowledge that openly, this is a good thing. Mm, it might be. I'm not saying that. Okay. What I'm saying is acknowledging it to yourself okay, enables you to differentiate between the work you're doing that fits the other person's narrative and the work you're doing that fits your narrative. Okay, got now, it. Yeah. There are some people who will respond well to a salesperson who is that clear about his or her motivations, but not many. Most people don't want to buy a suit from someone who starts the conversation with, I'm paid on commission and I'll really do well if you buy an expensive suit. Welcome to our store. <laughs> right? Some people want to hear that, but not most people. Most people have a narrative that says if they walk into a suit store, they're either short on time, in which case they want a salesperson that gets the problem, this thing over with fast, or they're short on self-esteem, in which case they want a salesperson that helps them through the exchange of money for fabric, walk out with more self-esteem than they had when they walked in. You can accomplish that by fitting into their narrative. Not your narrative, which is you get paid on commission, but their narrative, which is that they need to believe something about themselves that they don't believe right now. And through the miracle of commerce, they can exchange 600 Canadian dollars for something that puts a spring on their step and generates 10 more sales tomorrow, paying for the suit all in one day. That's a great point, but suits in Canada aren't $600 anymore, but I totally get it. That's fantastic. Wow, I learned something from that. I'm actually going to use that today in a few sales conversations I've got lined up for the rest of the day, so thank you. You're welcome. Um, so listen, I've got another question for you from our audience. There's a gentleman named Rob Cavanaugh, and here's his question for you. He said, if you had to do it all over again, what would you have done differently? Not one thing, because if I did it differently, I wouldn't be me. And I'm really happy that I'm me. All the failures, all the stupid decisions, the rejections, the dead ends, the moments I didn't think it was ever going to work, priceless. I wouldn't trade them for anything. It's phenomenal. It really is. And another question. This one actually is one I heard Michael ask uh, a previous guest, but I'm going to ask it this time. What's your resistance right now? What is it that you know you need to be tackling and doing and you're not? And what are you doing to overcome that? Oh, my resistance runs wide and deep. Uh, reading Steve Pressfield's book, The War of Art, was one of the most important moments of my career and also one of the most painful ones because now when the resistance shows up, I know it's there and yet I don't dance with it the way I could or should. My resistance lies in being ever less willing to risk blowing everything up, ever less willing to blow it, that there's me and then there's the world's version of me. And I sort of like the world's version. When I say the world, most people have no idea who I am, but there are some people who do. And I don't want to disappoint those people. I don't want to 
violate the promise they think I made to them about my work. And so you end up finding yourself in a smaller box because back when you got nothing to lose, you can make a book in a milk carton and you can upend the conventional wisdom in ways that are truly frightening. And over time, the resistance can push you into a corner where you can say, yeah, but why don't I just let a 30-year-old do that and give them a chance? And as a result, it is entirely possible for me to spend a day answering my email and create not nearly enough productive work. Well, that's brilliant. That's where we got the question from, from the War of Art. So I'm glad you, uh, you know the reference. So Seth, when we do these podcasts with our uh, guests, one of the final questions that we wrap up the conversation with is what are three expert action steps that you would like to impart to our listener as a thought leader that you believe they need to take in order to take their thought leadership to the next level, both from a perspective of intellectual rigor as well as commercialization? Okay, so let me see. First of all, I would strike the word commercialization from every single action that you take if you desire to be a thought leader. That if you actually lead a conversation, the financial upside completely takes care of itself. There is no one, not one person I have met who says, I am trusted by a large number of influential people and I'm having trouble making a living. Not one. Uh, so that's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is your problem isn't that you don't have enough good ideas, it's that you don't have enough bad ideas. And if you could figure out how to have more bad ideas, the good ideas will take care of themselves. My friend Isaac Asimov, who I was lucky enough to work with years ago, used to get up every morning, sit down at his manual typewriter at 7 a.m. and type until noon every day. And if he didn't have something good to type, he would type something bad. But in the end, by doing that, he ended up publishing 400 books. This is in the day when publishing a book was actually uh, a difficult act. And he changed the world, for example, robots. Um, you do that by coming up with enough bad ideas. And I guess the third thing I would say is you don't need more time, you just need to decide. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So Seth, at this stage of the conversation, what we usually do is we ask our guests if there is anything that they would like to let our listeners know about. If you've got an event coming up or a book that you'd like to talk about, this would be a great time to do that. Uh, well, you know, the last real book I did, I published myself. It's in its fifth printing. You can find it at yourturn.link, L-I-N-K, and you'll discover I've published it in a pretty unique way. And then the next project I'm doing, is this podcast going to be live soon? Very soon. Yes. Very soon. A okay. couple of weeks. Uh, so if you hurry and go to moreseth.com, M-O-R-E-S-E-T-H, 
www.moreseth.com. You can find the limited edition 800-page, 17-pound Titan that is currently being printed at an undisclosed location, and then it will be put into a container ship and spread to the four corners of the earth. There's only 6,600 copies, and that's it. Um, So if that's the sort of thing you're into, you might want to check it out. Absolutely. Tell us a bit more about that. Uh, well, it's the best of the last four years of my blog and Medium post and eBooks, and then I have hand curated a couple hundred photos from Thomas Hawk, who's a well-renowned photographer, and the juxtaposition of the two combined with the mass of 800 pounds, which weighs more than you know a dozen books, all in one four-color thing, makes it a collectible. It's expensive compared to a book and it's cheap compared to uh you know a signed oil painting uh but i wanted to make this thing to commemorate the last four years of the work for my readers with my readers and some people uh, can't wait to own it and you might be one of them well well seth i i have on my desk and it's been on there since i i've got i i bought it off of you when you did your kickstarter Oh, great. Uh, and so this is, will it, will this work? And so I'll definitely be getting Titan and it's, uh, you know, it just reminds me, it's like, just, just do the work, just go out there, put myself out there. So that's the inspiration that I keep getting from you. So I recommend everybody go check out Titan for sure and, and be inspired to just do the work and get out there and get yourself out there into the world. We'll definitely order one of the 6,600 copies for uh, for ourselves. If and there's any left If there's available. any left, for sure. By that time, absolutely, we'll do that. That'll be fantastic. Seth, it's been a real honor having you here on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Michael well, and honor, I really enjoyed it. The honor has been mine. You know, the, what people don't remember is that you guys are volunteers and that you're showing up and showing up and showing up. And I, for one, would like to say out loud that it matters and I am grateful for the work you do. Thank you so much, Seth. Thank you, Seth. That's terrific. Cheers. Thank you to our listeners as well. And you can find us on Facebook, The Business of Thought Thought Leadership. You can also leave us a review at iTunes. Subscribe, leave us a review. We'd love to know how we're doing. Give us some feedback. And as well, lastly, if you go to our website, thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com forward slash questions, leave us a question, suggest a change, suggest a guest. We'd love to hear from you and we'll certainly feature it on our show in the future. Thank you and see you next time. You've been listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. For more information and to download the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit us at thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Thank you for listening. 